0: Rumor, a currently circulating story or report of uncertain or questionable truth. This is Rumors of Grace, where I talk to people rumored to have found beauty and truth in broken and uncommon places. Welcome to the podcast, uh, shall I say Zoomcast of Rumors of Grace. As you can see, I have a very special guest today. I am talking to Sue Montkid. Sue was raised in the small town of Sylvester, Georgia, a place that deeply influenced the writing of her first novel, The Secret Life of Bees, which was an international bestseller. Um, That book sold millions of copies. Many of her books have sold millions of copies. Secret Life of Bees went on to be a successful movie. She also has authored The Invention of Wings, The Mermaid Chair, as well as several acclaimed memoirs, including Traveling with Pomegranates. The Dance of the Dissonant Daughter, and her newest novel is The Book of Longings, which was published just this April, which we're going to talk about. Sue, welcome to the podcast.
1: Oh, thanks for having me, Bob.
0: Yeah. Thank you for taking the time. Where where are you Zooming in from today?
1: Chapel Hill, North Carolina.
0: (laughs) Okay. And how long have you been there? Because according to your bio I just read, you're from Sylvester, Georgia, right down the road from us here in Franklin, Tennessee.
1: Right. Well, I, yeah, I grew up in the little town of Sylvester and I have been, uh, let's see, a resident of Anderson, South Carolina, Charleston, South Carolina, Marco Island, Florida. And finally, I hope never to move again, (laughs) Chapel Hill. (laughs) So we've been here two years.
0: Yeah, that's great. That's great. Well, um, before we jump into a little bit of your background, and certainly want to talk about the new book, which I believe is doing really well, um, lots to talk about. Um, I mentioned to you before we started the podcast, Sue, that um, your book, When the Heart Waits, um, I love it. Uh, I would encourage all my listeners to to, to pick up a copy. Um, you know, Sue, my listeners and the subscribers to this podcast are people who... Um, they're all over the board. They've been on their own spiritual journey. Some of them are questioning. Some of them are leaving where they were or moving into a new reality. Some of them are just really curious about the things that I talk about. And this book fits right in with that. And I mentioned to you uh, Richard Rohr's falling upward. Um, this, Mm. this is kind of like a, a first person version of falling upward to me, not, not to equate it too closely, but, um, First thing I want to know is it was republished. You originally wrote it back in, was it 1990, I believe?
1: That's right. That means we have a 30-year anniversary uh, in September. So it's been in print for 30 years, which is mind-boggling to me.
0: And was it your decision to re-release this? Why was it so important to re-release this book in the past few years?
1: Well, I think they actually just wanted to have some new editions um, of the book
2: mm. as it
1: aged. You know, um, it's the same. We put, I think the 10th anniversary, we put some material in the back. You know, we try to keep it updated. Mm. But um, I, I think, you know, I've pondered this really, why this book seems to last for new generations, so to speak. Um and I'm not sure I have the answer, but I think there must be something universal in that process. That's yeah. what I think. And um, it just so, therefore, it just sticks.
0: Yeah, I agree 100%. I'm going to read a quote from that book. Yeah. And, I, and then I want to use that as a launching pad for us to discuss this a little deeper. Um, this is from your book, When the Heart Waits. When change winds swirl through our lives, especially at midlife, they often call us to undertake a new passage of the spiritual journey that of confronting the lost and counterfeit places within us and releasing our deeper innermost self our true self they call us to come home to ourselves to become who we really are to me i think that is a great encapsulation of the book but but talk to me about that quote what what was what was motivating that, and, and where, where did this come from in your life?
2: When I
1: was 29, I read Thomas Merton's, um, I guess you'd call it an autobiography, seven, uh, seven Story Mountain, and this introduced me for the first time, believe it or not, I'm, I had to wait till I was 29 to get this. That there is an interior life in us that is extraordinary. You know, I I was so, my faith was in the Southern Baptist Church. And we talked a lot about the word, but we didn't talk, at least in my background, about this inner life. When I discovered that, it was like a revelation for me. It was a huge and stunning discovery. So I went on to read a lot about, well... Most of merton's work, and what I learned is that we have a true self and that we have a lot of false selves and This actually paralleled for me what I knew of the scriptures
2: mm.
1: the um, the Christ life within or the kingdom within what is that so I um also explored the work of C. G. Jung, which was a psychological version to me of the contemplative path that Thomas Merton was talking about. And he too spoke about this uh, self with a capital S, which is this um, divine part of us, true self, and how we go through individuation to find it. Now, I really resonated with this and I felt like it was a, a Christian path toward wholeness and toward individuation. And so I tried to um, write about my own process with that. So I think that quote is flowing out of that and many other
0: things. Mm. I was also brought up uh, Southern Baptist, and um, the realization was very similar. And um, in your book, you, you reference not only Thomas Merton, but, but Meister Eckhart, who is another person that I've been reading a lot. And one of the things he talks about specifically is that God is in the soul and that the soul isn't God, but rather the holy soil in which the divine life of of God is planted for us and cultivated. And that was, he was adamant that compassion was the aim of, uh, of all spiritual growth. Um, Talk to me a little bit about that, if you would just I mean growing up in an environment that taught that Christ was in you if you did certain things or prayed a prayer and you know those people who didn't, didn't have God in them necessarily. And for many of us who grew up in an environment that had a lot of shame attached to that, um, reading Thomas Merton, reading my, Meister Eckhart, reading others, young even, um, brought a new reality to that. Was that the true for you as well?
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, when I read Meister Eckhart, I was confronted with what you just said, that he felt that compassion was the highest human value, that it is, um, it is well, Jesus said, God is love. Love is God. So that resonated with me, too. Um, and I'm thinking of something else that Eckhart said, and I may get the quote a little, I may be paraphrasing. He said that we are all meant to be mothers of God. Mm. Now, that's an extraordinary statement, but it but it actually is another way of saying what I was attempting to say earlier, which is that we birth this divine life. Mm. And maybe that's the purpose of being here is to birth our true selves, our divine life. And um, Eckhart mirrored that for me in his work, too.
0: Yeah, that's good. Um, I know in reading, in reading your book and your own personal journey, this is not um, the universal side of it, as you mentioned, that resonates with so many people. Many times the universal story, Sue, is one of um, transformation, and you, you talk a lot about the chrysalis, the, the butterfly, that image, but there's also, that's not always a smooth and easy and painless process of shifting into a new reality. Um, It can be painful. It can be, there can be grief attached to that. Uh, There could be identity issues that you work through. Was that true for you?
1: It was, yeah. I think that's kind of universally true, unfortunately. (laughs) We have not figured out how to evolve through joy. (laughs) It (laughs) seems to be through pain. Mm. And I don't know why that is. But, um, yes. When I was growing up, you know, you could make an altar call and poof, everything was different. Right. Um, I learned that it was a little more complex than that. And a little, we had actually the contemplative life taught me that, reading about it, and the inner life that you really have to go through a process, a transition, a transformation that the soul goes through probably over and over in our lifetime and it's it's like an awakening and there are certain things that are true for transformative processes and i tr- i mirrored them in the book with the chrysalis and the butterfly because that was a personal story for me that took place and it it's just classic you know So every life needs to probably experience that letting go and going through this time of darkness and um, then an emergence. So that's the classic process. And um, it is painful sometimes because we have to let go of so much of what is familiar and turn around. It's like the trapeze bar, you know, you're, you've got to turn loose and turn around and grab hold of the one that you hope is coming in time. Right. So it's, there's fear in it. There's um, any kind of change like that that's deep. So when the heart waits, preaches, I guess, um, patience, waiting, <laughs> yes. but not just a passive waiting. It's a conscious waiting, a very sacred kind of waiting mm. that's, that we're not used to. It's an active waiting.
0: I'm curious what kind of feedback um, that you get from your readers over the past thirty years of this book, and I know it's mixed, but is there one or two or three that kind of stick out for you that says this is what I'm hearing um this is what i didn't I didn't expect when I wrote the book, or were you just surprised at the universal story
1: Well, there's always a measure of surprise in every book i write <laughs> um, you you know you follow your inner impulse, so to speak, your creative life and voice. And I'm just compelled to write about my story. I do that. And then I see what readers want to say about it. I think one of the things that surprised me about When the Heart Wakes is not just the longevity of it, but that spiritual directors adopted it Mm. and recommended it to their, um, their clients that was a surprise that my own story could communicate to others going through something. It doesn't have to be what I went through, but the process applies. And then maybe something else I heard a lot of from readers was um, this book got me through um, my divorce Mm. or this book, got me through the death of some loved one. So I realized that um it was applicable to so many specific ca- cases of what people were experiencing in life and that was that was a, a lovely surprise for me.
0: Yeah, that's great. You mentioned spiritual direction in your book you talk a lot about that and I know that I have friends who who not only participate that in that, but are also spiritual directors. And I, I, I've i had people ask me, you know, well, how is that different than just talking to a pastor or a priest? And um, it seems to be more people are are being open to the idea of spiritual direction. Um, I would, I would love to ask, what does that meant to you and how would you encourage that who people who are going through that? Is there a need for that? Was that uh, like a lifeline for you?
1: Yes. Um... I've had um, (laughs) therapists, union analysts, and spiritual directors helping me through my life, but also groups of uh, little communities, primarily of women. I believe that what is so healing for us, essentially, whatever means we choose, is to tell our story. We really need to tell our story, particularly the stories that are uh, painful, that cause us suffering, that cause us grief, and that seem to be roadblocks for us, yes. whatever's going on in our life. If we can take that and tell a story about it, it's it's extraordinarily healing. And sometimes we have to tell it over and over and over until we are able to move on. And The other half of that is we need someone to receive it, to really uh, hear it, receive it, and and respect it and love it and cherish it. And I think that process goes on in these ways with a spiritual director. Uh, Yeah, I think it's a wonderful idea to find the person who can hear us into being because that's often how our evolving self happens, you know, soul work, it's soul work and the work of the soul. I mean, when I think about it, I mean, we we are to be our greatest work of art, right? So we have to spend a little time on ourselves and the process of, of story, telling, articulating our story and going deeper and deeper to find new dimensions of the story and having it received is the heart of it for me. Um, but it guidance is great sometimes, but listening to the self is too. So it's a sort of balancing act.
0: Yeah, I love that statement. Hear us into being. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Um, how uh, how has that experience that you went through um, and then wrote the book? How has that influenced your writings? How were your writings different from prior? to now and uh, you know obviously this is a process that continues on our whole lives has it, has it changed the way you write your fiction has it influenced it in that in that way or is it something that's unconscious
1: oh i'm sure it influences it in many ways that are probably unknown to me i i think the book that has most profoundly freed me to write fiction and i use that Phrase very purposefully because it was like being freed to do something um, was the dance of the dissident daughter. Mm. Both of these books, it was like part one and part two of a, a long evolution of my spirit and my creative life. And both of these uh, books and stories that I tell in these two, in these two books show up in my fiction tremendously. I mean, I learned uh, so much by exploring, not just my life, but the life of, we were talking about Merton or Jung or um, Julian of Norwich or Eckhart or, I mean, so many um, great spirits that I studied and read about. I learned so much from them. And I think they show up in my understanding of the human character in my fiction the depths of our motivation, the false selves that we have, um, and the process that our characters go through to find healing. There's often this incubating of darkness that I write about in When the Heart Waits. Um, I, 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 That's an interesting question, Bob. I've never had that question before with When the Heart Waits, but it's. I'll, I'll have to ponder that some more.
0: <laughs> well, I know, um... I know that your, that your books um, have different themes and I wonder often, based on the themes, uh, if there's a piece of your own life coming through the characters, um, which we're gonna jump here in a, in a second to your latest one, um, if, if there's definitely some elements of that coming through. But before we do that, um, I just had one last question and maybe it's a big one, but, um, Sue, prior to um, the change and 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 the the spiritual evolution that you went to, and sue now, how are they different?
1: <laughs> oh my yeah, I could take up a lot of time telling you about this. well, I think I changed radically in a lot of ways um, I shed a lot of um concern about pleasing people. I shed a lot of concern about um, fear that of of what people would think of me if I said or did certain things. Um, You know, I grew up in the pre-feminist South in a little town, um, came of age in the 60s. I don't think feminism, well, it's still trying to reach that area somehow, I think. And
2: There were just um, expectations for women particularly. And I absorbed
1: all of that. And I had to kind of let go of so much of that. Things like, if you can't say something nice, Sue, don't say anything at all. I heard that a lot. (laughs) That's a Southern aphorism, I guess. Um, So it tends to silence us. So my silent self, my hesitant self, my fearful self, the self that um the the self that was completely selfless <laughs> um i had to work at all of that and it took really a long process of of so many years particularly in my 30s and 40s so today i'm much more fearless my my um my daughter calls me fearless mom but um I don't know if that's always true, but I'm certainly at an age where I feel like I have a voice, I have something to say, and I offer my experience as my truth. And um, that's an evolution.
0: Mm, That's good. That's a great segue into um, your latest book, The Book of Longings. Um, Before we get into the subject matter of it, and I have lots of questions there, but the, it seems that you have done meticulous research. There's so much historical, what from my perspective, historical accuracy from what I've I've read. Um, how did you do your research? Did you consult with historians or did you research it all yourself?
1: Oh, it was a one woman show. <laughs> Never mind. And it was a long show. <laughs> Um, it was daunting I, when I conceived of this idea to do this book. And I knew there would be no turning back. I started the research and it took 14 months of um, like going to class every day for 14 months. I had no idea what I was getting into. But I just acquired a little library of um, Oh, I read and read and read and I watched documentaries and I took some of these great courses, which were really helpful because they have some of the leading scholars about New Testament history or um, a lot of theologians, uh, Jesus historians, biblical background kind of things, the Jewish religion. I took, I, I listened to lectures on that. Oh my, I took notes and notes. I could, it it was just a long, extraordinary process. And the truth is I loved every minute of it and I agonized every minute of it. So, but mostly, um, I went down a rabbit hole and I, I almost didn't get back because just to write the book, I was so lost in all of this research, you know?
0: That's interesting. Yeah. So, um, I'm gonna let you give the synopsis of what the, what the book is about. It's a fiction book, it's a story that you've written. Um, for those people who don't know what it's about or, or haven't heard, so give us a quick synopsis if you would.
1: Okay, um, I'm notoriously bad at this, but I will try. <laughs> this This novel is the story of Anna, who is a young woman in the first century who is very unique and um, she is very ambitious, fearless, um, sometimes a little reckless. Um, She ends up marrying Jesus. Yes, that Jesus. (laughs) And she um, has a lot of magnitude about her, I think. She has a ambition. She's kind of a proto-feminist in the first century. And she has an ambition to um, write. She wants to be a scribe like her father, who was the uh, head scribe to Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee. Um, She also wanted to have a voice in the world. And mostly she recognized that she had a largeness in her and she wanted to bring it forth. So that's Anna, and it's really her story. Jesus is a character in the story. He um, appears not, I would say, roughly maybe a third of the book. Um, so it's, it's mostly her story, but he definitely has a part. And I'll just say a word or two about that. Um, my idea was to portray the human Jesus. I felt like we have lost touch with that aspect of Jesus. And I was very excited to be able to read about the historical Jesus and to realize that um, if we don't have contact or relationship with the human Jesus, maybe we don't realize what is capable for human beings. So we know the post-Easter Jesus, but maybe not so much the pre-Easter Jesus. And that was the one I wanted to focus on. So I just wrote about Jesus, the human,
0: the man. Mm. I love the focus on the humanity of Jesus. I've, um, I've come to appreciate that more in the last few years myself. And it's interesting to me, I'd love to get your perspective, and I'm sure in your own research, Jesus referred to himself more than any other title as the son of man. And that means the human one. And he referred to himself 81 times in the gospel recordings, which to me almost speaks to um, maybe he was trying to communicate very clearly and very plainly um, what other people may have been saying. He was trying to communicate, don't forget I'm human. Don't forget I am human. Um, the son of man, the son of man, the son of man. Um, I don't know. To me, to me, that's very compelling, and I agree with you. Um, there's something about that that maybe we've lost in some ways that when we do reconnect with that, um, we can maybe imagine and maybe even reimagine what it may have been like in, in stories like yours.
1: Well, my novel is an alternate history, so to speak. Sure. Absolutely. It's a fictional. <laughs> Obviously, I don't know if Jesus was married or not. I mean, there's a lot of scholars who believe it was highly likely he was, and a lot of scholars who think absolutely not. Um, But the Bible is silent on the matter. It doesn't say. And people pointed out to me, well, if Jesus had been married, the Bible would have said. So I'm not so sure about that. Um, What I have discovered is that women were largely invisible and silent. I mean, we we don't use many of their names in the Bible. They they roughly, what they have to say is about 1.1 or 2% of the words in the Bible spoken are by women. So they're not very uh, represented there. And I don't think it was prudent at certain times in history for Jesus to have been married, hmm. according to where the, the um, dialogue was in the church. So, you know, that may have been excised, I'm not sure. But I feel like it was a possibility from my research that he was because Jewish men at around the age of 20 or so were um, were basically required to marry. That was how they took their place in the community. It was a, a religious imperative, so to speak, a social imperative. And I had no reason to think that at 20, or so, Jesus didn't fulfill that. He was thoroughly Jewish, and so I went with that. Um, And I I felt compelled to just portray that human side of him. And um, so when I told my husband (laughs) that I said um, what my new novel was about, that Jesus was gonna be married, he said, wait, (laughs) you're writing a novel in which Jesus gets married, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> and um, <laughs> I have found that um, not a lot has gone wrong. You know, I've gotten a little pushback from some people, but most people who had a little hesitation to read the book and then read the book are, are so um, vociferous about how, how much they loved it and how it wasn't what they expected. I mean, I, you know, I discovered in my research and in writing this book, how much I admired this man, Jesus. Um, He was extraordinary. And I have readers writing to me saying, oh wow, I fell in love with Jesus again. I didn't see that coming. (laughs) And that was, I mean, I didn't have that intention. I was writing Anna's story, but I wanted to portray Jesus as close to my understanding of the Jesus in the scripture that I knew, the historical Jesus that um, historians wrote about.
0: Certainly the Western world um, would be very different if Jesus had married and his wife was included in the story. What, What are your thoughts on that?
1: I'll say, yeah, that was a question that um, I thought about a lot. In fact, the day that this idea came to me, I remember thinking, if this woman ever existed, she would be the most silenced woman in the world. So she needs a voice. So I'll give her one. That was what I thought. But yes, another question that I actually wrote on a card and propped on my desk was, if he had had a wife, how would the world be different? Um, Well, we don't even have time to scratch the surface, but I doubt we'd have celibate priests, for instance. Mm. Um, I doubt we'd have all male clergy in certain areas of the church. I think women would be more included. Their stories would have been more included. Um, I think it just would have had a profound effect on how history came down to us.
0: Mm. Yeah, no, that's, that's powerful to even, to even think about. Um, yeah, the impacts of society and, and power and marriage and culture, so many things potential, potentially. Um, also in your book, Judas has a large role in this story. Uh, why do you think, um, why do you, what was your motivation for deciding to make Anna his sister in the story? Judas.
1: Well, I didn't plan that ahead. I wanted Judas to be a character in this story. Um, I mean, we all know how it ended for Jesus. And I wanted to try to give a um, reason for for Judas' betrayal of Jesus, and to—I mean, I think it's much more complicated than we maybe think of it. He was just did a terrible deed, but why did he do that? What kind of political theater was going on that compelled him to do what he did? What was going on inside of him? And so. I knew he'd be a character and I wanted to explore my own theories about all of that. And I didn't know how to get him in the story, Bob. (laughs) I mean, does he just walk on? How how do I get him in there? And then one day it just hit me. Well, what if he's related to Anna? Um, That would be more interesting, I thought. So I suddenly had a character who was her adopted brother. And then things got really fun for me because um, Jesus, Judas and Anna have a little triangle of relationships that are complex and difficult. And I loved doing that. You know, there's a, someone asked me once uh, in a class I was teaching, what is a novel? How would you define a novel? And I said, well, it's taking a bad situation and making it worse. <laughs> it's kind of like that until you can finally resolve it. Well, that was what I was doing. I just took a bad situation where you've got a man who's going to betray Jesus. And I just made it worse by making him the brother
2: of Jesus' uh, wife. Mm.
0: And and was that uh, did that open up a whole possibility of uh, I'm sure you, you just following that uh, formula of taking a bad situation making <laughs> worse I'm sure that opened up a whole new world for you.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, that happens a lot in the novel. I mean, there's a whole lot of that complications and thwarting happening, um, one um, difficult situation after another. But um, I am a proponent of happy endings as mm-hmm. much as possible. So you won't see too much of a tragic ending in my books. But, but I want to leave the reader with something redemptive and hopeful about life. And um, I think this story does that, even though it's a difficult ending for Jesus. And this is heartbreaking for Anna. Um, they had, I mean, I decided if, if they're going to be married, they're going to have a great love. That's what I wanted. Maybe to model something. Mm. And so it was heartbreaking for her at the end, but I gave her, I think, um, a good ending.
0: In, In the, in the book, Anna wants to have a voice and she finds it through writing, which I think is, is interesting. Um, Let's talk a little bit about the importance of Anna writing, uh, wanting to write down the stories of women in an era when only men's stories were told. Well, talk to me about that.
1: Yeah, well, you asked me earlier, and I don't think I addressed it now that it occurs to me, how Anna, how my characters would be like me. She's like me in this regard. I am so driven to write the stories of women, particularly because women's stories have not largely been told um, in comparison to men's stories. I'm very concerned about um, reclaiming, recovering the feminine principles and women's presence and stories within religion. I'm um, all about that. So which is largely what the Dance of the Dissident Daughter is about. It's trying to balance something. And to see, I think Anna um she she kind of cultivates um women. She has an aunt, Yaltha, who is the funniest character I ever wrote, because <laughs> she's just feisty and sometimes a little vulgar and Com, just midwives Anna in life spiritually, so to speak, and um, kind of as a stand-in mother for her in a way, because Anna's own mother's pretty well not a she's not a great mom. And then there's Diodora, and there's Tabitha, and so she collects women who basically have had traumatic, hard, wounding experiences in life, and she writes about it. Hmm. and um, this is a way of witnessing the pain and hurt of others which I believe is important I don't think there's a pain on earth that doesn't want to be witnessed and so that's what Anna does and um, she gets a lot of that impulse from me I think
0: yeah yeah for sure for sure Um, I mean I think this whole idea of giving women a voice in an environment where um, that voice is is not accepted or acceptable, um, I think is not only interesting to put it in a time period, but also the relevance of today of what we're seeing our culture and our society being transformed, not only as, as you mentioned through um, the voices of women through the feminism and, and other things. But now all of a sudden, this past year, my goodness, in 2020, we see uh, this cultural shift of voices coming through, not only being allowed to come through, but forcefully coming through. Um, it seems to me that, that the book is very pertinent. It's very relevant on, on many different levels but do you have any thoughts on what you're seeing? I mean, you've seen a lot, you've written a lot, um, you've gone through your own transformations. As, as you think of 2020 from COVID to George Floyd to um, just, you know, we could go on and on about a crazy, this crazy year we've had. What, are, what is going on in your inner life as you look and see? Do you see hope and change? Do you see, you know, obviously you have to see the pain and the, and the trauma that so many people are experiencing, but, but what is, what is Sue's perspective on what's going on in the world?
1: Well, I think we're in the midst of a vast sea change. Um, This time, I think it's the real thing. And initially I thought, okay, it's we've been put in timeout. God has put the world in timeout, (laughs) go to your corners, and think about what you've done. My mother used to say that to me and my brothers when we fought and she would stick us in opposite rooms and we'd have to think about it. It reminded me of that. It's like some mother God has had it. (laughs) Now, I don't think it's causal or anything like that. I just think this is a moment for us to metaphorically think about it that way as in to, to reflect. And this reflection, um, this sort of pause um, is going to ultimately be good for us, I hope. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And a lot of it depends on um, how we incubate this darkness. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And you could say we're in a chrysalis and you could say that we don't need to come out of this chrysalis too early because as I pointed out in When the Heart Waits, if you do that, your wings are usually deformed. So we
2: gotta see it through. I think, um, I, I am hopeful about it. I think we have to be.
1: I think about Emily Dickens poetry, which I love and read, um, who said, hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the heart and sings the song without the words and never stops. That's what we have to do here is hope and sing that song. But um, it's a precarious time. It really is. But I am heartened by what's happening with the Black Lives Matter movement. I'm very heartened about that. Race is a big uh, motif for me in my work. With secret, The Secret Life of Bees was largely about race. Um, the Invention of Wings was ground zero about race with American slavery so I think we're seeing something extraordinary really
0: has it has it inspired you and is I know you probably can't give too much detail has it birthed another book idea or thought any of this
1: A a book has been birthed, and I hate to say I'm too early to talk about it because it's just I don't even have the words to talk about the book yet. But um, I can't say that it's directly related to what's going on now, but it's related, uh, as always, to the human spirit, to the journey a soul takes and how we find our way. Um, I'm, you know, all of my characters are are trying to get home. <laughs> mm. And this will be the case in this next book, too.
0: So how has the feedback been on the Book of Longings? I'd love to get, uh, maybe you can give us uh, maybe a wide range of what you've heard, been hearing so far. It's certainly a bold book, um, as your husband said at the beginning.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is a bold book. But writing is really an act of courage, I've decided um we we have to um pursue those things that creatively speak to us and ex- they they exert such a strong compelling feeling in me about and I know this is my book to write and I felt that way from the beginning with this book yes it's bold yes it's audacious um but it was important to me to have this idea out there, this alternate idea that can cause us to think about the world, how what we might do differently. It can inspire us to something new. Um,
2: I feel like um, most of the response,
1: I would say, maybe more, of the response I've gotten has been overwhelmingly positive about this book. And women particularly are writing to me saying, thank you, thank you, thank you for giving us this story of women's voices and women's largeness and blessing the largeness in us as Yalta did for Anna. And the the strength of the of the female characters and then a lot of people write about how they've gone back to church because of this book now that is a shocker for me <laughs> um, but i feel like they are in inten- their intensity of their feeling around the book has been kind of overwhelming mm. and the volume of the responses have been overwhelming i mean like thousands and thousands of responses of just beautiful responses. And then there's the other few, <laughs> you know, and people worried about me um, like, are you, are you okay? Are you getting, are people, are you getting backlash? Are they being mean to you? <laughs> um, not so much, really. I mean, I, I'm thinking of a, of a woman who uh, it, it sent me a comment on social media that said, I should try to, we should gather all of these books and burn them. And it was a pretty harsh kind of statement about me being burned too, which harkens back to the witch burnings. So that was like over the top. And I dismissed that completely. Um, And there are others who just say, you know, I'm praying for you, but these are people who are genuine in their faith and they aren't ready to you know, and imagine, they don't want to imagine this other way Jesus might have been. That's okay. Um, but typically the ones who write to me about it haven't read the book.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's usually the case, right? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah,
0: the hearsay. Well, I know my wife is a, a huge fan of your books. She has read several of them. Do you want to come? I'm going to let her say hi to you real quick. She's sitting here listening to the to the thing.
3: Oh, hello there! Let's see if I can get in. Can you, skip yeah, time? yeah, you're in. Hi, Sue. Hi there. It's so <laughs> nice to see you. And I just, like, I'm wearing a home shirt today. <laughs> We're all walking each other home.
1: <laughs> well, thank you for being a reader of mine. I appreciate that.
3: Well, I'm a reader, and I love to just let my mind wander when I read your books, and I just really enjoy hearing and seeing your soul, and it's really fantastic that I've been able to turn my husband on to you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I, well, thank you for that. I love it when, you know, I, I used to get this um, women coming up to me saying, mm-hmm. um, I made my husband read The Secret Life <laughs> of peace. And he's usually standing behind her going, yeah, she made me read it. And I'd say, well, how, did you like it? And he'll say, yeah, I liked it." <laughs> so, uh, so so, I hear that a lot, but it's, it's really great to hear. I, I love my readers. They're just amazing. And I don't take a
3: single one
1: for granted. They are
3: why I do what I do. Well, I'm just so thankful that you're able to share your heart with us and Allow us to see our own beauty and our own brokenness. Oh, that's lovely. That's what I would like to say to you this morning.
1: Thank you for that.
3: It's good to see you. And if you do come to Nashville, you always have a place to stay here in Mm -hmm. Franklin. We'd love to host you at any time. Um, Our little time. For the invitation, yeah. So come and see us sometime.
0: So, Sue, thank you for this time. I know you have a website, which is sumunkkid.com, correct? Yes. Uh, so people can go connect there. Uh, I think all your social handles is your, is your full name as well, I believe. Um, yes. Is there anything else or any place else that you would point people?
1: Oh, I can't imagine. I mean, I have a website, Twitter, Instagram facebook and i'm very ambivalent about how to do all of that but i try i try my best because i want to be connected to my readers and uh, hear what they have to say and be able to have a place to voice some things to them so it's it's been good but i've seen you
0: i've seen you on instagram lately with hanging out with alicia keys
1: (laughs) yeah who who would think yeah amazing right (laughs) 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 (laughs)
0: You're, wearing,
2: you're culturally relevant. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. great. That's great. Well, thank you uh, for your time. And as my wife, Kelly said, thank you for your honesty and vulnerability with your writing. I hope that you continue to do it for many, many years. Um, and thank you for your voice that, that is uniquely yours, but also connects, obviously, to so many different people. Um, so thank you for that.
1: Well, that was very lovely, and I appreciate the time today. It's been wonderful to talk to you.
0: Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Sue. We'll talk to you really soon. Okay. Bye-bye.
2: Bye-bye.